Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. On August the 12th, author Salman Rushdie was attacked at a conference in upstate New York. Rushdie was 75 years old. He was poised to speak at the Chattaqua Institution when a man rushed the stage and repeatedly stabbed the author. Rushdie is expected to live, but his injuries are extensive. You have to ask, what would provoke such a ruthless attack in such a, uh, such a dramatic way? Well, back in 1988, Rushdie wrote a book called The Satanic Verses. I've never read the book, and quite honestly, I, I have no intention of reading the book. But in the book, apparently he makes some disparaging comments about uh, Islam and about Muhammad. And if you know anything, you know that you better not say anything nasty about Islam. You can criticize Christianity all day long, but you better behave yourself with, with Islam. Particularly anything printed or anything like that, uh, it, it typically will not go well for you. So after the book was written on 14th of February, 1989, Ayatollah Khomeini, the, the leader of Iran, issued a fatwa. If you don't know what that is, uh, that's, uh, that's not a sneeze or anything. That's, a, that's, a, uh, that's a basically a, a judgment that is made that allows for someone to be assassinated uh, as, a, as a way of extracting honor uh, for a dishonor that had happened. And so the Ayatollah of Iran issued this fatwa calling for Rushdie to die, as well as for his publishers. Well, what's incredible about this is that the book and the fatwa are over 33 years old. Now, you would have thought that after 33 years of not being murdered by Islamic extremists, that perhaps after 33 years you could maybe sleep a little more peacefully, but sadly that was not the case. What's even more astonishing is the man who made the assassination attempt, his name is Hadi Matar, he's only 24 years old. Uh, so he wasn't even alive during the heat of all the controversy. He, he wasn't even thought of in the heat of all of the controversy. Now, there's probably a lot of definitions of commitment. But I got to say that this definitely has to make the list when you're trying to define someone who is committed. If I'm honest, I could have heard the name Salman Rushdie before last Friday, and the name would have sounded familiar to me. But I... I probably wouldn't have been able to figure him out without a Google search. Because that's just, I don't, I mean, I've heard the name, but I couldn't have told you who he was or what he had done. But to think that this order from Iran had been in existence for four decades, and a guy tried to carry it out, and he wasn't even alive when the book or the fatwa were issued. I was sitting here thinking, I'm 43, the book's been out for 33 years. I'm trying to think back to things I said when I was 10. And like, man, if, if somebody got mad at me for something that I said when I was 10 years old and then came hunting me down today, I mean, that, that's intense right there. That's, that's serious business. The Ayatollah of Iran said in his fatwa, I call on all valiant Muslims, wherever they may be in the world, to kill them without delay. Well, he got that part wrong. So that no one will dare insult the sacred beliefs of Muslims henceforth. And whoever is killed in this cause will be a martyr. Allah willing. This young man charged the stage, and he was completely prepared to die 
in the process, in the hope of attaining some sort of blessing and some sort of eternal reward from Allah. Now, if that doesn't cause you to at least stop and say, you know, how committed am I to the things of Christ? I mean, if this guy was that committed to the things of Islam, how committed am I to the things of Christ? Now, the good news is, is in following Jesus, you're never going to be asked to rush the stage and try to assassinate somebody. So, so that's off the table. But how committed are we when it comes to the things of God? How committed are we to his people, the church? How committed are we to the mission of reaching the lost? Just how committed are we to the things of God? This morning, we're going to move into the second half of Joshua chapter 1. And as we do, we're going to ask this question, how committed are we as the people of God? Now, we're not very far into the story here in Joshua where we're already being challenged to be strong and courageous. uh, And we're already met with some really compelling examples of true strength and true courage. If you got your Bible open, hopefully you're in Joshua chapter 1 by now. We will do the last half of the chapter after spending a couple of weeks in the first half. Joshua chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. If you're able, would you stand with me as I read these words from Joshua chapter 1, verse 10. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days. You are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that, you're, that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives and your little ones and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return it to the, then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it and the land that Moses the servant of the Lord gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, all you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandments and disobeys your word, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the courage and strength of the characters that we encounter in the book of Joshua. We thank you particularly for the lessons that we can learn from these tribes. Father, I pray that when they are successful, that we would learn from their triumphs, their victories. When they mess up, that we would learn to avoid their mistakes. Bless us now as we consider these verses. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As always, context is key. It's important to understand the context of the passage in order for us to understand exactly what's going on. And we obviously know some things about the situation we find here in Joshua chapter 1. We know that the nation has been wandering around for, for, four, for four decades, 40 years. And again, you can see this map in the last book of your Bible, the book of Maps. You've probably got a map very similar to this. 
The first time Israel approached the promised land 40 years sooner, they did so from the south. And if you read through the, the first five books of the Bible, you'll run into a little place called Kadesh Barnea. And it's a major spot in the journey, shows up a lot in the story. And there from Kadesh Barnea, Moses sent 12 spies into the promised land. Ten of the 12 came back, all, all 12 came back, but 10 of the 12 came back fearful and unconvinced. They didn't believe that they could do what God had called them to do. The only people who believed were Joshua and Caleb. And of course, this situation led to a national crisis and ultimately led to funerals in the desert, as I had a seminary professor explain it, that you just had to have a lot of people die in order for this to happen. And so what goes on is they roam around for a generation, but while they're doing so, the tribes that had heavily invested in livestock they started to recognize that the eastern bank of the Jordan River was perfect for grazing. And Joshua says the land towards the sunrise is the language that's used here. Now, if you go back in Numbers chapter 32, again, cross-reference all this, the leaders of those tribes, Reuben and Gad, and part of that tribe of Manasseh, they approached Moses about settling east of the Jordan River. And they agreed. And they agreed to, be, to settle in this land that would eventually come to be known as Gilead. But in order for them to strike this deal, these tribes had to agree to send their fighting men with the rest of the nation in order to conquer the land between Jordan, uh, the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, which only makes sense because they had the whole nation to help conquer east of the Jordan, so it only made sense for them to go and help conquer west of the Jordan. So they had to work this entire deal out there back in the book of Numbers. But all of that sets the stage for what's happening here at the end of chapter 1 of Joshua. We get to verse 10, and we are immediately hit with this incredible word. They begin with, with Joshua commanding the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you're to pass over this Jordan. Three days. It's time. Get ready. We are marching within three days. You can let that settle in. Again, we read this and, and, okay, three days, you're thinking three days. But understand, context is key here. They are riding on promises that they've been hoping for for 600 years. They've been camping in the wilderness for 40 years. Some of y'all would, like, go nuts to think of camping for one night unless it, the camper, unless the tent had wheels and air conditioning or something, Right? And so the thought of taking a tent into the wilderness and sleeping on the ground for one night for some of us is, is a little bit overwhelming. They've been doing this for 40 years. They have buried their loved ones in the desert for 40 years. That's a long time to be sleeping in the woods. And now the clock has wound down to three days just settle in. I mean, I mean, I think of, of kids getting excited about the next calendar date. You know, like, like kids, I mean, somewhere there's kids that are counting down to Christmas already. And I mean, it's August. I mean, there's some adults counting down to Christmas too. Um, I mean, there's that giddiness of, of how, many, how many days is it, Foster? Do you know? Okay, all right. Somebody's Googling it right now so they can sound smart, right? I mean, there's that countdown aspect of, of man, it's only, it's only three months or it's only four months or, or my birthday's only, only six months away and I'll be X number of years old. There's that anticipation of, of, of just what is ultimately a real brief amount of time. But this nation has been waiting for 600 years 
in three days we march. That is a, an impressive word. Now, don't miss the faith of Joshua here. Joshua is standing on the bank of a flooded river because we get that information later on that the river bank is the river has overflowed its banks. So he's standing on the on the banks of a of a flooded river. And man, he's got a logistical nightmare on his hands. Right? I mean, just consider it's not like they were in tour buses. All right, everybody get on your charter bus and we're going to drive over into the promised land. They weren't, that's not what it was. I mean, this is a group of people that are living in tents and all of their stuff is, is portable and is mobile. I mean, he's got to get these people across a flooded river. Uh, this is a problem today. We've got all kinds of modern technology to help with this. Uh, part of the reason Ukraine has been successful against Russia is that they've constantly attacked bridges to shut off supply lines. And Russia's having to figure out how to move things across rivers when they've got modern amphibious assault vehicles and all these sort of things to be able to move materials. Imagine trying to get a million civilians across a flooded river with no bridges. And Joshua says, all right, in three days we move. Whoa, Joshua, I mean, you've got a logistical nightmare. And it's not just military forces. It's not like he can, you know, command the soldiers, you guys go through the river. He's got civilians involved. I mean, he's got three-year-olds. You imagine? Uh, he's, got, he's got nursing mothers. For crying out loud, he's got middle schoolers. You ever try to wrangle middle schoolers, Jacob? I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a chore, and you've got them in a contained room up there. I mean, I got a middle schooler that lives in my house, and, and there are times I'm thinking, how in the world did Joshua get middle schoolers across the Jordan River? It's crazy. It's tents. It's a tabernacle. It's whatever you can fill in the blanks with, and Joshua is looking at the people saying, in three days, we're going. Within three days, we're going. Joshua's a man of great faith. The countdown is on. And then he's got this issue that's brewing in the background. Because he remembers, he was there, he's got those tribes who've already reached their home. These two and a half tribes that said, you know, this is where we're going to live. And I'm sure in the back of his mind, he's afraid of the drama regarding those tribes. You ever been there before where you know there's, there's the potential for conflict brewing? You don't know what the conflict is, but you know it, the potential is there. And in the back of your mind, you're just playing out all the details and trying to think through how that might go. And you know Joshua's thinking... He's got, you know, he's got nine and a half tribes that are committed. But then he's got those two and a half tribes that are sitting back there on the east bank of the Jordan saying, we're already home. And he then has to go and talk to these people. I mean, he remembers the promises that were made back in Numbers chapter 32. He, Moses was there, though. Moses was the one who heard those promises. But now Moses is gone. Are, are these folks going to keep their end of the bargain? I mean, here's this, who's this, this kid that's, that's step, stepping up to lead. Is this the point to where they look, you know what, Joshua? You're not Moses. We're going to do our own thing. When Moses was in charge, they wouldn't do whatever was asked. But they also weren't staring across a flooded river at the citadel of Jericho when these promises were exacted and they weren't under the charge of a truly untested leader. So he goes to them and he reminds them of the promises that they made. He said, your wives... Your little ones, your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. And if Joshua was at all worried about it, their response to his charge 
really should have encouraged him. They simply stated, all you've commanded to us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. I mean, you couldn't ask for better troops, right? We'll go wherever you tell us to go. We'll do whatever you ask us to do. And it really is remarkable when you stop and think about it. These men, they were already home, but they were ready to go and fight to see God's promises come to fruition. I think there's some really valuable lessons here that this whole interaction, this whole instruction has for us today. And the first thing I wanted to mention this morning is that their attitude reflects absolute confidence in God's promises. The attitude that's reflected in this interaction is one of these cinematic moments that would cause you to well up with pride and tears. And, and if you could pick up an Israelite shield and sword, you'd probably go enlist too. I remember going to a boot camp graduation down at Fort Benning. I was with a friend, and, and his son was graduating from boot camp. And, man, they, if you've never been to a boot camp graduation as a spectator, you might have been as, a, as, the, as somebody graduating, but as a spectator, man, they did the thing, and they were repelling down stuff. I mean, it was crazy to watch these guys graduating from boot camp. And I, my, my friend was an old Marine, and I said, man, if they had a recruiter out right here, I'd go enlist right now. I mean, it was like, yeah, I want to be part of this. Like, I, I'm a pastor. I'm going to be a chaplain. I want to sign up. Enlist me right now. We were on a cruise one time, and, and somebody had a heart problem, and the Coast Guard had to fly their helicopter alongside the cruise ship and then lift this person up off the cruise ship in one of these Coast Guard go-getter things. And, like, Coast Guard people are jumping out of the helicopter, and, and they're rescuing people. And I'm like, if the Coast Guard was smart, they would drop the recruiter on the deck of the boat right then because all of us would have signed up. Like, I want to be part of this. I want to be part of that. What happens here is one of these moments where you say, I want to be part of this. I want to go with these guys. They have an attitude that is absolutely inspiring. In spite of a flooded river, in spite of unknown situations, the fact they might die, they're ready and willing to go and do whatever it takes to accomplish their objective. And Joshua didn't, like, hide from them. I mean, he didn't keep it secret. He told them their assignments. Did you miss it? It's in verse 14. All the men of valor among you shall pass over armed, real important word right there, before, before your brothers and shall help them. So it's not like Joshua looks at him and says, we know you guys are home. We're going to need you to bring up the rear and keep the rear guard safe. Joshua looks at these guys and says, no, you're going to be the tip of the spear. You're going to be the ones who are crossing the, the river first. You're going to be the ones who, who get the arrow shot at you first. They are the front lines. They're scaling the walls of Jericho first because at this point in time, nobody knows how they're going to beat Jericho. At this point in time, nobody knows how they're going to get across the Jordan River. But they're the tip of the spear. They're in the front of the formation. They are the front line of this offensive. They're also the first ones to see God's promises come true. When you look at their attitudes, you can't help but notice what isn't there. It's important about attitude are the attitudes that are missing in as much as the attitudes that are there. There's not an attitude of negativity. I tend to be one of the worst in this department. It's not a virtue that I'm proud of. If Eeyore was a pastor, that would sometimes describe me well. I get caught in the middle of logistics and resources and all the things we can't do. If I'm Joshua, I'm looking at the river and thinking, man, somebody needs to build some boats. 
You know, I, 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 I'm not getting in that water. And I have to remind myself all the time that we serve a God who is capable of doing all things. And here's the thing. I know I'm not alone in this because some of y'all got that gift of Eeyoreism too. Some of us dwell in the negative and instead of celebrating the God who can, we live and worship more like a God who might. In this group, there's not a cannot in the bunch they're ready to go. They're ready to fight. They're ready to take the promised land. There's not an attitude of cowardice. They're not sitting back thinking of all the reasons that this is a bad idea. How many of us are like that? Something is presented and you automatically start thinking, you know, this is wrong because, this is a bad idea because, this could happen because. And, and really it's not that you're legitimately thinking about all. There's just that, there's that little bit of fear that's there. They're not looking at the river wondering how they're going to swim that far. They're not looking at Jericho and thinking about everything that could happen. They're looking at what's in front of them, and they are confident in the Lord, and they are sure of his promises. They even jump in with the unofficial battle cry of the book of Joshua there in verse 18. Only be strong and courageous. And that's like they're getting it tattooed on their arms at this point. I mean, that's how committed they are to this. This motto is on their new license plates. It's on all of their merch. There's not an attitude of self-centeredness. It'd be super easy, wouldn't it, to speak up and say, we've got our land. You guys be careful. We're praying for you. We'll send cards. Here's some cookies for the trip. Nope. We will do whatever it takes for our brothers for a couple days, and then we'll come back. No, it, it's a blank check. Look at what he says in verse 15. How long are they committed to this? Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. When that happens, then you shall return to the land of your possession, and you shall possess it. You can come home when the job is done. You can be finished when the task is complete. Now, this ought to certainly give us cause to pause and reflect on our attitude towards the things of God. How often do we allow negative attitudes and critical spirits to affect our joy and our commitment to the work of God? You know, our culture really, really does a good job of breeding these kind of negative attitudes. I mean, it, it, it grows well. I mean, that we are a Petri dish of bad attitudes. I wonder how the interaction there would have gone if Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, if they'd had access to social media. If, if instead of just valiant warriors with swords, they had some keyboard warriors with smartphones. I imagine that as Joshua was meeting with the leaders of the tribe and they were talking about the conditions of the arrangements that they had made with Moses years ago, I imagine that if they had had some sort of social media keyboard warriors, that somebody was listening in and somebody was convinced it wasn't a good idea, and before the meeting was over, he got his iPhone out and he sent a tweet. It probably something like this. Gadil Ben Sodi, Keyboards of Gad, that's his hand, Twitter handle. Looks like the general sending us on a suicide mission. Hashtag flooded river, hashtag Jericho rising. Before the meeting's over, 20,000 people are liking and commenting on it. 
And instead of ready to be the tip of the spear, they're ready to stay home and not be involved in this conflict. They go from a can-do attitude to a you-do attitude. Notice the difference? The can-do attitude says we're in this together. The you-do attitude says you go tackle that and tell us how it went. But this whole thing, we, we have this, this whole world that lives and breeds in this kind of negative, nasty, critical, public spectacle. And critical attitudes and nastiness have just become part and parcel of what it means to live today. And listen, I'm convinced that we as God's people can do much better than that. I mean, I really am. If we're actually worked hard to flood our circles of influence with positive attitudes and encouraging words... Imagine just something like this. Imagine going on Yelp. And instead of leaving nasty reviews for that restaurant, what if you just went on Yelp and left something positive about a place? Mention an employee by name. Well, I mean, what if you just used your influence to do that? Instead of going on Facebook and complaining about something, what if you started looking for people to encourage and speak life to? I mean, we're really good at going on and complaining. The government's stupid. The commissioners are morons. We do everything. This, this place is nuts. I mean, that's, how, that's, that's Facebook in a nutshell, right? What if we actually went on and said, Foster, that was a great worship set you chose today. We appreciate you leading us in that way. What if we went on and, and said, you know what? The guys who are running the video stream at our church do a great job in making sure that I can be connected to worship when I'm not here. What if we went on and actually encouraged and edified and spoke life to people instead of letting our criticism brew and boil over? Listen to me. I appreciate customer reviews as much as the next person when it comes to deciding to try that new restaurant or looking to book a hotel. But everything is always so skewed to the negative and it's so critical, sometimes it's really even gotten hard to discern what's true or not. And Christians can do better. The book of Philippians is often called the book of joy. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. This should define us. This should define our character. This should define how we speak to one another. He goes on in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. We tend to dwell on the anti-Philippians 4, 8, like all the stuff that's not mentioned here. But Paul says to dwell on those things. Things that are honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellence and praiseworthy. And again, this isn't about some sort of positive thinking exercise that if you just think positively, everything will be great. That's not what it's about. It's about recognizing the confidence that we have in Christ and letting that confidence be a blessing to others in real and tangible ways. And when it comes to the church, the expectation is that our attitudes and actions towards one another should be dramatically different. Consider the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and half of Manasseh. Their actions reflect an absolute commitment to the people of God. Now, again, I don't have any idea what these three days look like when they're getting ready to tackle the Jordan. But in my mind movie, y'all got mind movies where, where you read this and you think, okay, in my mind movie, this is how this plays out. 
In my mind movie, I picture the fighting men of these two and a half tribes being the highlight of the scene. If I'm directing the scene, I mean, this is the preparation segment where everybody's getting, you know, they're getting their gear together, they're strapping on their shield, and they're, they're getting ready for the fight. They're packing their bags. They're saying goodbye to their families. They're moving to the front of the line, the tip of the spear. They're an inspiration. People who are afraid and, 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 and concerned, when they watch these two and a half tribes line up, they're emboldened and they're ready to go with them. Now again, I don't know if that's how it really played out, but principally the outcome is the same. They're committed to fighting for their kinsmen, for their nation, for their people, and the language Joshua actually uses is for their brothers. They understand the cost. As a Christian reading this, I can't help but see that there's a challenge extended here to the church. Now, again, you won't find a lot of New Testament teaching that a nation should have the same kind of unity that the church has, but you cannot avoid the fact that the reality is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is called to radical unity. And unity is not the same thing as conformity. Unity is not about going along to get along, but unity is about a commitment to the plans and purposes of God worked out in the community that we call the church. That's what unity looks like, and we're all called to be part of that. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this. He says in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's a clear challenge for the church. There ought to be an eagerness to maintain unity among us. When we approach the people of God, the characteristics that govern those people are things like humility and gentleness and patience and love. Just consider those words. Humility. What does that mean? It means considering others' needs ahead of our own. It means that I need to think of your needs before I think of my own. You need to think of my needs before you think of your own. That's what humility is. Gentleness. Gentleness speaks to kindness in our, in our interactions. Gentleness eliminates harsh words and critical spirits. That's what gentleness does. Patience, how much do we need to show patience towards each other? Patience is about showing grace to people, recognizing that we're all at different places on the journey, that we all have more work to do. And love here, this is not some sort of sappy emotionalism. Love is about seeing people as God sees them. If I am called to love you, it means I'm called to see you in the same way that God does. If that is what governs our relationship with other Christians within the church, and my actions are reflected out of that governance, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty stunning community to be a part of. That sounds like a pretty stellar place to be. You know, we always have to be careful in making too many parallels between Israel and the church. But when we see virtues worked out in a story like we see them worked out today, it's easy to see how those virtues tend to apply to us. So that begs an important question. Regarding our attitudes, do your attitudes, do my attitudes, do those attitudes reflect a high degree of confidence in God's promises and in his word? And do our attitudes radiate from a much more inward focus or do they reflect a confidence in who God is and what he has said? Sometimes our attitudes come from within, and they're not of God. Our attitudes need to reflect 
God's goodness in our lives. Regarding our attitudes, they point people to Jesus. Regarding our actions, do our actions demonstrate a commitment to, to the community of Christ that we call the church? Simple question. Do our actions reflect a commitment to the body of Christ? Do they reflect a commitment to God's people? Do our actions reflect a desire to see the family of God accomplish the will of God in our community? That's what the, that's what the tribes were up to, right? Their actions were about seeing God's promises come to fruition. Their actions were about seeing God's promises to the nation become realistic. Here's the thing. We don't have the same commission that Joshua had. Joshua's commission was about bringing God's judgment against an evil nation. But we do have a commission. And that commission that we have is to declare the good news that God's judgment's already been poured out. Joshua's bringing judgment to the Canaanites. We read about that back in Genesis, that the Canaanites were evil, wicked, wretched, and eventually God would bring judgment against them. But listen, God's judgment has already been poured out, and it's been poured out on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus received judgment on our behalf so that we might be in a right relationship with him. That is the gospel, and that must be our focus. We aren't called to bring judgment to the nations. Instead, we're called to bring good news to the nations, the good news that judgment has already been brought against the Lord Jesus Christ. He received that judgment for us that we might have eternal life in him. That is our mission. That is our commission. And just like Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, we're the tip of that spear. That's our calling. That is our mission. That is our objective. And therefore, do our actions reflect a commitment to that truth. Do you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for these tribes in Joshua that were such an encouragement. And Lord, we know there's coming a day where, in our story, where they, they get off track and they mess up. But Father, I pray that we might learn to, from the victories, from the triumphs, that we might learn to reflect that from the mistakes that we might learn to avoid that. And so, God, I pray that you might govern our, our attitudes, that they would reflect our confidence in your word and your promises. I pray, God, that you might guide our actions, that our actions would reflect a commitment to the things of God and to the people of God. And that, God, you will work and move in us, that we might be a light, certainly to the nations, but that we might shine the light of the gospel even to our own backyard. May we be committed to your purposes and plans for our church and for our lives. God, we are grateful for your goodness, for your faithfulness. We pray that you might bless and move in our midst today. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.